Um, we've been praying, Tony's letters in prayer, and we've been praying that the Lord might help us to reach out to other people um, and so that sinners might know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is a passage that really teaches us something about that because the master himself, the Lord Jesus, has this encounter with a sinful woman and it's absolutely wonderful. So we can learn something about evangelizing from this, but of course we take it to our own heart, don't we? And we, we see the gospel in action in a glorious way. So let's crack on. If you've got the Bible open, it's on page 894 if you've got one of the um, church Bibles. And I need to say just a brief word about um, that little thing in brackets. <laughs> because it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. So I need to give just a, a tiny little word of explanation uh, for that. It is still in the Bible, thankfully. Uh, but it does say the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage of scripture here, which is true. The earliest manuscripts we have, this is not here. My old NIV, it's funny using that phrase, isn't it? An, an old NIV, but one of the earliest NIVs, uh, they used to put on, um, the, um, let me just read this because I want to get it right. I'm going to find out, I haven't written it down now. But the, the earliest manuscript, uh, NIV said, the most reliable manuscripts don't have this passage. That was a bit naughty. It was really. Because it's still up for discussion. Because Christian people, and I'm not really qualified to talk about manuscripts. Okay, you, you heard this morning my training was in drama. But Christian academics, there's still a great discussion going on about which are the most reliable manuscripts. Now, I could say quite a bit about this, but I'm not going to get tempted, because we can rely on our English versions, get a good version, and so we've got a good version in front of us here, and there are other good versions of the Bible, and we can rely that this is what God has revealed to us. <clears throat> but the question is really, um, which manuscripts, okay? Later manuscripts, the received text, which was used for the translation of the authorized and then the New King James, then it's clearly here in the passage. But the reason I'm speaking on it tonight is um, really we've got to understand that it, was, it is here in John chapter 8. This is where we know of it. But in some manuscripts, it appears elsewhere in John. In other manuscripts, it appears in different places in Luke. And so when you get a conservative um, student, when you get a conservative scholar, if I use that word, <laughs> then uh, they recognize that even if they don't think this passage should be exactly here, then they don't deny scripture. So somebody like Don Carson, who, you, you know, people are respect him and so on, he doesn't think it should be here. But then he goes on to say, there's absolutely no question that it happened. He says that. No question that it happened. Um, and then he expounds it as well. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this. Please, or, or this is a plea, don't let go of this. Don't let go of it. This is one of the best illustrations of grace 
that we have. And I've no doubt it's scripture. If somebody says it should appear in Luke, well, that's okay. All I'm bothered about is don't forget it's scripture. This happened. And so, John chapter 8. I hope, I hope that wasn't too contentious. <laughs> I, I just thought I had to say a bit about, you know, it's seen a bit in brackets in scripture. You think, oh, what's going on here? Well, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. That's true. But it's in a lot of others. 8, chapter 1. Here we go. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, finishes off the last passage really, and then we read, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Oh, to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him explaining scripture is just absolutely sensational, isn't it? And the Lord Jesus got up that morning and we read that it was early in the morning. He went to his usual spot to teach the people. They knew, so they were coming and they were gathering there. He'd have a good idea what he wanted to say, wouldn't he? He'd have thought it through. He, wasn't, he wouldn't have gone sort of saying, hmm, I don't really know what to talk to him about today. That wasn't the Lord Jesus. He had a plan. And early on in his ministry, you know, he spent a lot of time speaking to the disciples to convince them of who he actually is, the very Son of God. And you can trace this through all four Gospels that the Lord Jesus is convincing them of that. And the miracles were to aid them as well. And then when Peter finally confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then it just changed tack a bit. So immediately after that, he was transfigured before them and they saw something of his glory and his splendor. And he'd reserved that until after they really understood who he was. And so the Lord had a plan. So we're not to imagine he's turning up here uh, to teach the people, um, but uh, without knowing what he's talking about. So he's got a plan for the day. We all have plans. You'll know what you're doing tomorrow, some rough idea. So the Lord comes. It's in the morning, and he comes to the temple where he taught. All the people came down to him. He sat down and he taught them. So we can imagine the situation. We're not told what he's teaching them, but he's teaching them. And then he's interrupted. Now this happens in life, doesn't it? It, it happens all the time. So we've got a plan. And then somebody chucks a spanner in the works and it all goes askew. And everything's going wrong. Now, the Lord Jesus, when you look at his ministry, it, it, it wasn't just in situations where he was thoroughly prepared, there were no interruptions, no kids screaming, nobody doing bad things. It just didn't happen like that, did it? It was in his daily life and there was this real interruption. The scribes, the Pharisees, bring a woman to him who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And then we have this very helpful comment. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So, you see the situation. His enemies have been thinking things through and they get an opportunity. This woman is caught in the act. 
of adultery. There doesn't seem to be any investigation here because it's obvious. They don't have to bring evidence and prove she's been caught in the act. So they bring her. They, they don't bring the man, by the way. They just bring her. So we've got this poor, humiliated woman in the midst of these men who are bringing the whole weight of the law of Moses against her. And they bring, it, bring her to Jesus. Right. Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Well, the first question is, of course, is did Moses really say that? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with another man's wife, both the man and the woman must die. That's what the law said. And so this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Moses said, that's the commandment. And if you break that commandment, then death follows. Okay? So Moses did say that. So we can see where these scribes and Pharisees are coming from. They're plotting against Jesus. And I liken them really to journalists nowadays. You'll have seen, won't you, somebody interviewing politicians and they're really good at it. And what they really want to do is get a question that's pretty unanswerable. So it's going to be really embarrassing. And it's really going to show them that they've, they've no chance. And, that's, and there were some, there's been some masters of that over the years, haven't they? And you've seen poof, politicians squirming, really. Because if I say yes, oh dear, that'll be dreadful. If I say no, oh, that'll be even worse. And so there's no option. Now, this is what they were after. They were the journalists of the day, really, the interviewers of the day. And so they brought this woman to Jesus and said, right, what do you say? Well, what were his options? If the Lord Jesus had said, no, you mustn't put her to death. What's he doing? Well, he's going against what Moses said. Moses said she should. So if he says, no, don't put her to death. Well, that would be a disaster. Because the Lord Jesus teaches very clearly that do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he can't say no, can he? He can't say don't put her to death. Because the Lord Jesus, it's very easily demonstrated that he lived by scripture. It was the basis of all his authority. He fulfilled scripture. He did not go against scripture in any way. And he taught that scripture is God's word. Now that's very easily demonstrated. That's why we hold to scripture. And that's why Christians believe the Bible. It's through the example and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who came back from the dead. And that's why we're not liberals. Because they separate and they pick and choose what they believe from Scripture. But we can't do that. Because the Lord Jesus easily demonstrated believed Scripture. 
And so he himself is the word, the living word of God, absolutely revealing perfectly who God is in his person. And we have the inscripturated word, which is God's word breathed out to us to tell us everything that we need to know for our salvation and for living this life in a way that's pleasing to God. So we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the living word. And we believe the Bible because they're, they're in harmony. And so you can't separate the scriptures and Jesus. It's absolutely nuts. <laughs> it's logically an impossibility to say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I don't agree with all the Bible says. That's nuts. It's like saying, I support Leeds United and turning up when Leeds are playing Man United. <laughs> well, perhaps next year, you never know. Uh, with a, a Manchester United scarf and joining all the Man U fans saying, oh, uh, you support Leeds. You don't look like that to me. And it's a bit like that when you say, well, I, I, I follow Jesus, but I don't get on with the Bible. It's a nonsense. Well, I think these scribes and Pharisees, they understood where Jesus was. They knew that he taught that scripture was the basis of his authority. So, so often when he's asked a question, he goes straight to scripture. So he can't say, no, don't put it to death. Can't do it. So what's the alternative? Yes, put it to death. Do exactly what Moses said. So that's the alternative. What's going to happen then? Well, the first thing to say is there's no evidence, as far as I know, if you know differently, point it out to me, but as far as I know, there's no evidence at all that that law of killing somebody caught in adultery or somebody guilty of uh, adultery was still operating. So that didn't happen in the days of the Lord Jesus. And so the first thing to say is it would have been incredibly unpopular if this new prophet, this Jesus, suddenly said all adulterers should be put to death. But the real reason why it would be very difficult for Jesus to actually say, no, don't put her to death, was the fact that only the Romans could put people to death. And we know that through uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shenanigans that went on by those Jewish enemies to make sure that Pilate gave authority for his death. And that was the involvement of the Romans. And it was because only the Romans had the authority to put anybody to death. So if Jesus says, right, okay, um, put her to death, we'll go with Moses. Then that's the end of his ministry, basically, because um, the Romans could not allow that. You see, these, these Pharisees and these scribes, I think they thought it through. I think they said, we've got him, we've got him. What can he say? What's he going to say? He can't say yes. He can't say no. So you can see the glee in their eyes when they said, what do you say? What do you say? Well, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, so there wasn't an immediate response. And I should imagine that would encourage them even more. <laughs> We've really got him. We've got him. 
So there wasn't an immediate response. They had to keep asking him. And he eventually stood up because he'd been writing with his finger on the ground. We'll come to that a bit later. So they're asking him this question. Keep asking him continually. And he's, with his finger on the ground, he's just writing. And that would have encouraged to think that. What's he doing? Is he, is he buying time? You see politicians doing that, don't you? <laughs> when there's these difficult questions, you see them, and you can see the brains, what am I going to say to this? You know, and they'll say something like, can you just repeat the question? Because they're fishing for an answer. Well, is that what Jesus is doing? Or is he just indifferent? Well, neither of those things are the case. They continue to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is why we love the Lord Jesus. There's nobody like him. That is just sensation. It's, he's so wise. And so he's not saying Moses doesn't matter. He's not saying she doesn't deserve death. She does. That's what the law says. But yet he's not willing for her to be put to death. And so his solution is, right, first one, anyone without sin, throw the first stone. Oh, it's a masterpiece, isn't it? It's a masterpiece. And then, of course, and the, the Lord in his preaching leaves room, doesn't he, for the Holy Spirit and for conscience to convict because the result was, one by one, they went away. And meanwhile, Jesus had sat down and was writing on the ground again, letting them steal with the conscience. And from the oldest, that's significant, isn't it? To the youngest, there was none of them who had a clear conscience to put her to death, even though they believed that Moses that taught that that was the thing to do. So this is just an amazing answer that the Lord Jesus gives. And these men would have remembered what Jesus had previously taught. He'd previously taught, only before, in Matthew 5, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And what Jesus does in the early chapters of Matthew is he makes us understand that God is not just looking at outward things, but he looks in the heart. That's our problem. That's our problem. Sometimes people look at Islam and Muslims and say, for, you know, look at the dedication of what they do to keep what the religion requires. But I always think, look what the Lord asks of us. He's looking at the heart. Dead easy doing stuff, isn't it? Doing stuff. But it's the heart, it's the mind, it's the thoughts, it's the intentions. And we're all corrupt. And so this was a situation where these men were brought, confronted by the Lord, not by yelling at them, just by a simple statement. 
anyone without sin, off you go. And they couldn't because they knew that they were without sin. And that's true. The Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin, didn't he? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he convicts us through the law. So by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is hugely important. Because without the law, you don't know, do you, that you're a sinner. You can't break a rule that isn't there. You know, for years I used to drive about without my seatbelt. For years. Didn't bother me. And then they brought the law in. And I had to pull my seatbelt on. <laughs> and this, when a law comes in, then suddenly, oh, yeah, I get fined. Getting to bother with the law, with the police. Better do what they've asked us to do. And so it is with the Ten Commandments. They're there to show you, right, that is the requirement. You must not commit adultery. And the Lord makes it absolutely clear that God means in the heart. And that is true of all the commandments. And that is where we begin to understand our corruption. Sometimes people are a bit confused when, when Christians say, um, we're all sinners, you know. Oh, I'm always on about sin, you know. I haven't, I haven't done anything bad. I've never been in bother with police and this kind of thing. I'm, uh, they're talking about somebody else, not me. And it's not, it's not until the Holy Spirit convicts us in our hearts of what sin really is. And he's doing that to these men. I had an experience, it's, it's a lot of years ago now, to illustrate this. I don't think it's a good thing for preachers to use their own examples to illustrate things normally. But when it comes to sin, you can't pick on somebody else, can you? <laughs> I'll tell you what happened to my friend. You can't do that. So th this is a confession, all right? And it's years ago in Manchester, I'd stopped in the street in my old car uh, to pop into the shop to get a green and can you remember those? You used to get football results from green and pinks and little newspapers. And I popped in to get a paper and when I got back I saw two lads sitting in the front seat of my car. Now what would you do? What would you do? You see these men, they had an instant to decide what we're going to do. Am I going to pick up a stone? Do what Moses said? Or am I, am I going to leave it? And you find out what you really like. I was walking towards the car. I was I speeded up, but I didn't want to run. I didn't want them to know it was my car. And I knew exactly what I was going to do in an instant. I was going to go, open the front door, and smack this lad as hard as I could in the face. And keep smacking him until he couldn't move. I got to the car, went for the door handle, and he drove off, both of them, together, down the road. Both with the seatbelts on, interestingly. They brought, drove off down the road, and immediately I came to my senses. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Could have killed him. Well, you might say, he could have killed you. Well, he, he could, but at least I wouldn't have broken the commandment then. But if I'd have killed him, it was shocking. It was shocking. I was horrified of what was in my heart. I know my own weaknesses. I've got loads of weaknesses. But I didn't think instinctive violence was one of them. I didn't have a history of it. I'd only ever been in one fight when I was a kid. Somebody hit me, so I fought back. I always avoided violence. I was a bit of a hippie in those days, you know, peace. And so I didn't really think that was a problem for me until I was put in a situation 
And I found out I got murder in my heart. And thankfully, how thankful, thankful, thankful that God intervened. Now that's just one example. But it'll be true of you. You'll have stuff in your heart that you don't even know about. It's no good when Christians say, how could anybody do what they do? I could never do that, could you? All it tells you is that they have no understanding of their own heart. That's all it tells you. Because in certain situations, how you're brought up, your environment, your experiences, and then some incident, and the human heart, what a mess. These men, right, who's without sin? You throw the first stone. Wouldn't it be wonderful if on Twitter and Facebook and all the web stuff, this message got through? Because it's mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. Even in Christian circles. Somebody's labored for the Lord all their life, and then somebody's found out something wrong, and boom, 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 boom. Never listen to that man again. <laughs> He's gone. Poor old Peter wouldn't have had a chance after denying the Lord, would he? But he was main spokesman on the day of Pentecost. And so the Lord really leaves room, as it were, for the conscience at work. He's down on the ground writing on the ground again. Then Jesus stands up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. That's sensational, isn't it? He's not condemning her. Go. From now on, sin no more. I wonder if she did. You know, I think, I think that woman, we don't know, but I think that woman should have been so moved by the compassion of Christ that I think she'd have left that life, lifestyle. Do you? I hope so. We can't be sure. But you know everything that we do in our Christian lives is out of love for the Lord Jesus. We don't do anything to get to heaven, do we? The Lord, the Lord does all that. Through his blood, he's died on a cross to save us. And we just say, thank you, Lord, that's wonderful. And the change in a person's life is not because suddenly they realize, oh, God is real, and there's a hell, and there's a heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Better start doing good things. No, no. The motive for everything is love for Christ. We're here tonight because we love Christ, and we want to worship him. And everything that we do, never forget it. Otherwise, there'll be so many problems, and you'll get so fed up because... Nobody else seems to do anything, and you've got this to do, and that, and, and you're not appreciated anyway. I'm going to pack it in. You'll get there. You will eventually. But if we say, right, Lord, it's for you, for you. I love you. Then that love, and this is something totally unique to Christianity, it's out of love for Christ. Love is the motive for everything that we do. I really hope that that woman's in glory. Now we can have a chat to her. Because from that humiliating condemnation, now she's free. Now the Lord is doing two things here, it seems to me. Um, the first thing that he's doing is he's showing us, of course, 
how wonderfully gracious he is. Let me turn, to a, uh, turn you to a verse. I think you'll know this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Have you got that? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. No condemnation. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. John 12 teaches exactly the same thing. In John 12 verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must never ever forget them. When Christ came to this world, he came with the objective of saving sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He knew how he was going to do it. It was through this atoning death on a cross that he would become the propitiation, taking the wrath and the anger of God, which really should be on our head, and diverting it from our head onto his head. We totally rely on Christ finished work and he was able to cry it is finished from the cross we totally rely on that for our salvation resurrected glorious we love this man and he did not come to condemn the world which shows how daft those Pharisees and scribes were because they had come to the one man on the face of the earth who had not come to condemn and they brought this woman <laughs> so that he could condemn her Oh, that's balmy. It really is balmy. It, it's like it's like going into the butchers and saying, uh, "I've come for a haircut." Uh, this is a bad illustration for me and for a few of us here. <laughs> but it's like going into a barber and saying, "I've come for a haircut," and the barber, no doubt, would say, "No, no, we're hairdressers. We're a barbers." Hang on. I've got that wrong, haven't I? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He's in the butchers. I forgot. So he goes into the butchers and says, I've come for a haircut. And the butcher would say, uh, you've come to the wrong place. We don't do that. You need the hairdresser just down the road. Okay, we don't do it. And they brought this woman to Jesus to condemn her. You can't do it. Don't bring anybody to Jesus in your prayers so he might condemn them, will you? He didn't do that. We come to a throne of grace. It's where grace is dispensed. Nothing else, just grace. And it's absolutely wonderful. I, I do hope you remember that because I made a mistake. It's all God's providence, you know. And you know, oh yeah, I remember when that preacher messed it all up. But Christ did not come to condemn. That's... That's a wonderful message. But back to John 3, because when you read John 3:16, people forget to read on, don't they? Verse 18: Whoever believes in him is not condemned, praise God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You get it? And so the condemnation there is not receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in his name, the only name named into heaven by which we must be saved. And so these men were condemned. Now, when Jesus 
was writing on the ground, what I think he was doing there, in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, we have a reference there. We read, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some people say, well, what was he writing? Was he writing words? Was he writing a message? I don't think that's of any significance. I believe, and I'm not being over dogmatic on this, but I just think it fits. I just think scripture interprets scripture. And we have a verse here where those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. And here was a situation when they brought this woman so he could condemn her, when it specifically said, I have not come to condemn that's not why I'm here. And those accusers, those who point the finger, those people who want to absolutely condemn, then they're written in the earth. I believe it's a judgment on these Pharisees and scribes. So that one by one, they were put to shame. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. They didn't skip away from Jesus, do they? You only skip when you're happy, don't you? They didn't. They trudged away with their heads down. They were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. They'd realised, oh, I'm a sinner as well. And I want another sinner put to death. They recognised that. They were ashamed. And so we have the Lord Jesus writing on the ground and showing really that uh, these people are already condemned because they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 12 teaches the same thing. We read from John 12 last time. But we need to read on. Because it says there, anyone who hears my words does not keep them. I do not judge him. That's not what I've come to do. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Christ comes again, of course, in judgment, doesn't he? So he's coming again, and the words that he's spoken will be really what will judge all these people who have not received Christ. I just think it's rather wonderful how compassionate he is to this woman, and how it teaches us that if Jesus didn't come to this world to condemn, it's not our business, is it? It's not, you know. We haven't got the responsibility of condemning all the wicked people in the world. Because we know we're sinners as well. Our responsibility is to speak of the Lord Jesus. And to tell of one who does not condemn, but saves. But always with the balance. There is such a thing as condemnation. If you don't believe in the Saviour sent by God, there's only one option. You are already condemned till the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us when we have a spirit of condemnation. When, Father, somehow we behave and think in a way that it's only other people who mess the world up. Help us, humble us, convict us so that we understand something of the corruption of our own hearts. And we recognize, Lord, the only person there 
the only person ever who was actually without sin chose not to throw the first stone. Thank you, Lord, that that's our experience of you. Though we could be in hell now, deserving of it, but we're not. And Father, we thank you so much that Christ is the perfect saviour for sinners. We know, Lord, all we've got to do is come to you this very night and ask forgiveness. So, Lord, here we are. Forgive us for all our sins. Cleanse us from our iniquities. Fill us with your spirit. And then, Lord, we pray that we might learn increasingly to love you, to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow you wholeheartedly. We ask that in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.